Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. How are we doing? My name's Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor. I hang out right over here after the service. Come and say hi. I would love to meet you. Today, we get to talk about generosity a bit. Uh, yesterday, we had a woman's brunch here, and it was like 450 women and a bunch of dudes serving. And if you leave with a little glitter on your backside today, that is our gift to you from the women yesterday, all right? <laughs> like a decade ago, you had to pay good money to get glitter on your booty, you know? <laughs> Crossroads, keeping up with the times, a decade behind. That's our motto, everybody. Uh, <laughs> no, man, we're glad you're here. We're going to dive into some scriptures this morning, and we're going to talk about Christmas, and our whole series revolves around remembering what's truly important as we go through this time that, like Andy said, is busy and sometimes a little too routine and joyful and sometimes difficult. But before we get into the text, each time we open it at CBC, we want to acknowledge that this space is sacred. We want to acknowledge that our culture is divisive and our culture is critical, oftentimes because we're either prideful or insecure, but this space is a space where the scripture speaks to us. So we have a phrase that we like to say, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. What that means is as we open the scripture, God's going to do a work in you. We don't open the scriptures for your neighbor that needs Jesus. We open it for you because you need Jesus too. And God begins to change our institutions through individuals that look like Jesus. So I'm going to pray. I'll ask you to pray before we dive into the scriptures. God, I'm thankful that we can be here, that you are worthy of our worship and our praise, that you change us as we open some scriptures today to look more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, do a work this morning. Shape our souls, convict us and encourage us, give us joy and give us peace. Begin the long, hard work of Christ's likeness. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and say a prayer to yourself and invite the Holy Spirit to shape your spirit this morning as we look into some scriptures. And I see you pray for me that I might do an accurate job depicting the goodness of God in Philippians 2 this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Now, guys, people said, amen. amen. We're going to talk about generosity this morning. It's, it's funny to me how Christmas changes as you grow up. So most of you probably know that my birthday is on Christmas, so I had to be a pastor. wasn't a choice. And I remember growing up on Christmas, and literally I have a twin brother, and I was born on Christmas. I've learned to share all my life, and I would count the presents I got, and I'd compare it to my twin brother and my little brother. You know who won every year? My little brother, that's exactly right, everybody. I'm letting it go slowly, okay? It's amazing, though, that I never really focused even on my birthday or Jesus like all kids do. You focus on what you get. My daughter, who's four, I was driving her home from daycare last week, and she said to me out loud, she said, Dad, I have to pray to Santa for what I want for Christmas. 
and my, my pastor head exploded in about five different pieces. And I said, ma'am, I'm a pastor. Please never say out loud what you just said, because I can be a bad dad or a bad pastor. I can't be bad at both, all right? Um, we're fans of Santa in our household. It's a story of generosity that we want to tell. But I said, I think you're missing the point behind what we're doing. It's funny, as we get older, Christmas becomes less about getting and more about giving. It becomes less about what we can get because we live in an Amazon world where we do get what we need to get two days from now and more about how we give to others. But, but, but I think some of what we run into is we give without a full understanding of why. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like in this season, people keep asking for stuff all the time. Last Tuesday was Giving Tuesday. Last night, actually, I went to my first gala because uh, I'm classy. I actually... <laughs> wore the same thing I wore on my wedding night eight years ago, and it fit-ish. <laughs> uh, and it was interesting about this gal, the whole point was to raise money for the school. It was a fantastic night, but they had a live auction. I'd never seen a live auction before. So it's a live auction, and they had this guy with a microphone that literally did an amazing job of, of coercing people to give more money. And so there'd be an auction item and he'd start the bidding at whatever it was. And he'd start by saying, hey, you know what we need? We need excitement. So people would clap for the thing and then he'd get people bidding and he'd get down to two people and he'd say, you're gonna give three grand. Can you give four grand? You're gonna give four grand, ma'am. Can you go back and give five grand? And he'd pit people against each other. And when they stopped bidding, do you know what he did? He said, everybody give him a round of applause. Peer pressure works, Okay. And he'd say, guys, we need to help them be more generous. And so people would yell and scream and applaud. And if that didn't work, at the very end, he said, hey, remember, it's for the kids. <laughs> I'm telling you what, if we don't hit our December numbers, he's going to be here Christmas Eve. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I'm just going to bring him right in. It was magical. <laughs> no, I think my, my, my point is we go through the excitement of it, we go through the I need to of it, we go through my kids are at the school kind of sort of mentality, and then finally we remember the why behind the what, and why is it that sometimes the most meaningful part of what we do is the last thing we remember in what we're doing? I feel like in a consumer culture, good, bad, and indifferent, oftentimes we forget why we give in the first place. And this is what I love about, about, about Christmas, is Christmas is the time that we get to celebrate Jesus coming near. And in that we see really an amazing gift that God has given us. And what we want to do, and this might seem routine to some of us, and that's okay, but Christmas is centered around giving because as we get older, it moves from what we get to what we've been given. And the best way to cultivate a generous culture is to realize what we've been given through Jesus. The best way. And so today I'm just going to talk about that. I'm going to try to say that we are a generous, gospel-driven culture, and that only works if it stems from your depth of understanding of what Jesus has given you. And if you don't get that, it's going to fizzle out in time. If giving for us as a community, a gospel community of followers of Jesus, is based on how much God can like me or love me or I'm supposed to or percentage of your income, because that's what you were told growing up, that is not the right way to give. Giving is a response to the gift that God has given us, and we celebrate that at Christmas. And, and so today... We're going to look at Jesus in Philippians 2. You can go there in your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 6. We're going to look at what Jesus gave up for you. And you're going to say, Charlie, I know these things. I'm going to say, great, think about it again. Because sometimes the most beautiful things are the things right in front of us that we forget to think about because they're so obvious. So let's dive into our text. In Philippians 2, he begins by saying in the text, um, though Christ 
existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. So this text, if you know this text, if you've studied this text, is known as the kenosis text. And what that means is that word emptied right there kind of has a lot of weight to it. And there's a controversy, not really one, but kind of one around this word. Some people might say that when Jesus emptied himself, he literally emptied himself of his deity. And that's the controversy. But the problem is it's not true. That word empty doesn't mean he let go of something. It means he moved his presence from somewhere to somewhere else, but still remained fully himself. Literally, the word empty there means poured out into something new. You guys remember the Indiana Jones movie, Indiana in the Last Crusade? Remember that? That's right. You remember the most terrifying scene in that movie? It was at the end when they're trying to find the cup of Christ, literally, and that he used at Passover. And, and the, the German people are in there and Indiana Jones is in there. And the German guys are trying to pick out the cup, the chalice of Jesus. And they pick out the most resplendent chalice. You remember that? And he drinks after it, and he's like, oh, this is amazing. And then in the very, very best 80s CGI, you, somebody really knows it. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I could, it burned into my eyeballs, man. This guy went from aging 50 years in about five seconds. Remember that? It was terrifying. And then Indiana Jones picked this carpenter's cup, and he drank it waiting to die. And the guy said, you chose wisely, right? Uh, the, the, the text here does not necessarily, it does not imply when it says empty that God was no longer God anymore. It, it, it implied this is what he came from and where he went to. It implies a move from heaven to the cup of the carpenter in earth. And so the first thing that we see when we notice that Jesus emptied himself of something is literally he left, he emptied himself of the presence of heaven from where he came to, from where he left to where he came And I think that we just need to pause for a second and fully grasp the idea that Jesus left heaven for you. Do you know what's better than Texas? There's a pause here that scares me. Like what Davy Crockett said, you may all go to hell, I will go to Texas. (laughs) So he's defined it, you know? But look, we, we got to talk about what heaven was just to refresh our memories because sometimes we're skewed by things we don't know or narratives we've told ourselves growing up. Like it's going to be just us all the time praising God with all the angels. And my nine-year-old self was like, no, you know? I think that what we know about heaven in the scriptures is, is a couple things and we can't really go farther than that because the language they use is, is describing something that they can't put words to, 1 Corinthians 2.9, that you have no idea what's coming. And even if you did, you couldn't literally form it into words. It's so good. So what we know about heaven is not necessarily what we're gonna be doing. We know God's there or, or, or what we're gonna look like or how many hymns we're gonna sing or how many angels we're gonna sing with. We know heaven is a more resplendent place than here. It's more beautiful. You can look at Revelation 21, but it says in heaven, where it describes new heaven and new earth, it says it's full of brilliant and costly stones. It lays out the 12 pillars that are resplendent with stones from top to bottom. And this is what we get to when we talk about the idea of beauty and the the scripture writers, when they describe heaven, describe it as a beautiful place because I love what Dallas Willard says about beauty. Beauty is goodness made manifest to the senses. Why is heaven beautiful? Because it tells us that God is good to a degree which we do not know right now. Heaven is a more beautiful place than this place. 
It's kind of like if you've ever been to Colorado and come back here. I'm so sorry, but it's the truth. So, so Jesus left a beautiful place, but he also left a better place. You know, heaven is the place of the no mores, you know? No more tears, and no more sadness, no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more suffering. Heaven is the place of the no mores. And do you know why it's a place of the no mores? And this is the big idea behind heaven, because God is there. The problem with this broken place is that we no longer are in direct communication with, direct correlation to, we're no longer feeling fully the presence of God all the time. And we need him. We need him. And so when Jesus comes back and says, I am the presence of God made manifest in this place and this people, it's a foreshadowing of the beauty and the presence of God that one day we get all the time, everywhere we are. So I like to define heaven, as I think we just had it up there. I like to define heaven as the place where uh, God's presence is fully known, his influence is fully felt, and all things are fully blessed. Where the presence of God gets to all the places where the people might go and everything is perfect because God. And so we're going to sing some in heaven, I think. I think we're going to play some basketball in heaven. I'll play with Luca, hopefully, you know. Um, but I think heaven is perfect because God is there. Heaven is beautiful because God's goodness is more more palpable there than anywhere else. When the scripture talks about heaven, it simply talks about our communion with God all the time that we might know his goodness in ways we can't know here. Jesus left that for us. You know the phrase, uh, the Texas bumper sticker, I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could. That'd be like if somebody looked at you and says, I was born and raised in Texas, but I left Texas for Oklahoma because somebody I cared about moved there. And you think, oh, that's right. <laughs> Some of you from Oklahoma are like, oh my goodness. But, but, but really, I think we need to start by understanding what Jesus left for you and me. I think we, we talk about heaven in ways that are oftentimes ethereal, and that's okay, because the Bible does. And we don't fully grasp the beauty and the betterness of heaven that Jesus left for you and me by his own choice. People want to get to heaven. They don't want to come down here from heaven. He's the only one. So when we talk about a season of generosity, when we talk about how we respond to Christmas by giving, it's because we fully understand, first of all, what Jesus left to come here. He left heaven for you and for me. And so it says in our text, he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a slave by looking like other men and sharing in their likeness. That word form there is twice. That word form is there two times. And it literally means an outward appearance consistent with what is inwardly true. And so in Jesus, we have something called the hypostatic union, which just basically is a big word for saying that he is 100% God and 100% man all the time. That's what this text and others tell us which means that Jesus isn't 50-50, he's 100-100. Can I explain that? No, I just know it to be true, you know? What that means is that Jesus left none of his godness when he says he emptied himself out. This is what it's talking about. He was fully God and he still came here. We have this idea that he didn't lay aside any of his power or divine right or divine goodness. He laid aside our ability to see it. Because he, it says, has no desire to grasp godness because he's already been grasped. So, for example, if you track through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you, you see Jesus a couple times, actually, uh, quote the Old Testament to prove that he's God in the New Testament. Mark 14 is one. 
when basically he says, I am, and that's the name of God in the Old Testament, and it blows the, the, the doors off of the temple that he's in when he's on trial. Uh, my favorite example that I bring up often is he's healing a man on the Sabbath, and it really makes the, the priests really mad, the Pharisees really mad, because it was considered work. And so the Pharisees go to Jesus, and they say, you are not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Only God is allowed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yes. <laughs> and they're like, wait a second. And so Jesus often tells us that he's 100% God as he moves about his day in the New Testament. And when it says in our text that he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, what you have to realize there is that word grasp means stolen or robbed. There's a couple ways to translate that. One is how we would translate it, which is we do whatever we can to take something that's not ours, namely divinity. It's the problem of Adam in the Old Testament, right? It's our problem now. We put ourselves in the place of God because we want what he has. It's a misordering of goods. But in Jesus' case, he didn't want equality with God because he already had it. So what the passage literally means is that Christ did not think of his godness as something to use for his own advantage. Rather, he used his godness to serve others for their advantage. It's why he emptied himself out and came into the world and he gave up his glory so that people might see God. Do you guys know the story behind the real St. Nicholas? I think I say it most Christmases, but if you don't, there's a guy named St. Nick and he lived in 325-ish, Council of Nicaea. He lived in the fourth century in some of the third. And he was persecuted for his faith under a guy named Diocletian, who was a Roman emperor, thrown in jail by all accounts and stayed there for a little while. And in 325, you had this first council of Christians. And by council, I mean the first time Christians got together and talked about Jesus out loud because you did it before you died. And so you got to imagine that a few hundred people come together to speak out loud things that weren't allowed to be spoken out loud before, and they hobbled in. These guys didn't know somebody that knew somebody that got beat by their faith. They were beat by their faith. They came in with bruises and breaks and missing arms and legs and lost loved ones because they loved Jesus. And so in the middle of this, there's this heated debate when this guy Arius gets up and he says, you know, Jesus isn't fully God. You know that, right? And St. Nick was not having any of that. And he walks over to Arius and he slaps him in the face. (laughs) Made Will Smith look like nothing, you know? They asked, actually, as legend goes, actually asked St. Nick to leave. He was a bishop at the time. He wasn't supposed to do that. You know, forgiveness is key. And so he, he talked through and he stepped down for a little while. And then he just started giving gifts to people so that people might know that God is good. And, and why I bring that up is because it's very important that we know that God is fully God all the time. And, and St. Nick stood on the fact that Jesus was fully God. Because when we understand that he didn't give up his godness for us, we fully grasp what he gave up for us. It's kind of like a... Have you seen the show Undercover Boss? You know that one? When you get these CEOs that go into these places that they run. I watched one the other day. It's like the only one I've watched. But there was this guy that started this chicken chain. And what I love about these shows are most of these CEOs started the restaurants or the businesses themselves. It's their blood. It's their sweat. It's their tears. It's their vision. It's their philosophy for good. And he went into this place when none of that was going on. And he was just heartbroken, you know? And what this guy didn't know that he was working with, a line chef, was that he was talking to the guy in charge of everything, but because of the makeup and because of the hat and because of all the other things, he couldn't tell, he couldn't see. The guy was still the CEO, but the guy working with him on the line just couldn't tell that he was the CEO. So what did God give up to come here? 
He gave up his glory when men looked at him. You know how hard that is? For God to show up on earth and for years for people not to recognize who he was. You know how difficult that must be? For Jesus to walk day in and day out and people treat him like he's not God. Jesus gave up his glory for our good that we might see more of God's goodness. But, but not only that, it says in verse seven, by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and sharing in human nature, 100% God didn't give that up, but also 100% man. <laughs> Could you imagine what it must have been like to be God and, and, and feel bound by humanity? The answer is no. The closest I can get to is back in the day, way back in the day when I fit into my wedding attire. I was an athlete. And, um, you know, I played a little basketball and baseball and football growing up, and I liked it. I was decent, not great. Um, but I think now, every once in a while, it's been a long time since I've played basketball, but I'll try. And I'll pick up a basketball, and in my mind, I can do what I used to do when I was 18, you know, which is not dunk. In my mind, I'm the 18-year-old Chuck running around with a lot better body and in shape and a lot more bendability, you know, and, and a lot less fatigue. And then you start to play and you realize pretty quickly that I can't do what I think I could do anymore. And you ask the question, why and when did this happen, you know? And now I wake up in the morning and to stand up, I have to exclaim with some kind of groan. I think when Jesus comes to earth and when Jesus says he takes on the form of men and he shares in human nature, you have to understand it's not just that he walked and talked and got hungry and wept and, and, and was tired. It's that he literally was bound by humanity in a way that God had never been before because he's 100% man. And my question is simply, do we understand how frustrating that must have been? Because he still held the universe together. When we start to deepen our understanding of what God gave up for us, it makes us more generous people from a healthy place that won't dissipate over time. So Jesus gave up heaven for us and Jesus gave up his glory for us. For years he walked around and nobody knew. Like what one commentator says, his are the eternal glories, both by nature and by right, but they are not a platform for self-display nor a launching pad for self-advancement. Therefore, all, they all are for self-denial. Self is something to pour out. So he, he gave up his place in heaven. He gave up his glory that he might be seen. And then, and, then, and then finally, I think you look at the next verse in verse eight. God gave up his freedom for you and me. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just to get something straight, inside the Godhead, Jesus, the Trinity, Jesus has always been subservient, submissive, whatever word you want to use, to the Father. It's the nature of relations within the Trinity. It's a good, healthy, holy thing. It does not in any way convey value or worth. Um, and so out of that, we get how we submit to authorities in our world as well. But what Jesus did when he came here was he gave up his freedom to live and he found death so that we might live. Think about that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. And I don't want to get all Easter at Christmas. It's one of my pet peeves. But I do think what it shows us is the way in which Jesus gave up his freedom because he found us worth it. I can't imagine trying to 
for the, I can't imagine trying to understand what it's like to be God and then to be born here, not have people see you as God, not have people respect you as God, not have people worship you as God, and then tell you what to do, you know? Uh, Pete Peterson is a, an elder here, and he teaches up here, and we went to Albania one time years ago on a mission trip, and he was pretty high up in the Air Force general at one point, and I found this out as we were on this trip. And, and I went to Albania because they asked me to go. I brought nothing to the table. And people like lined up to see and hear Pete because he was respected and he was known. And he was an ex-general. And at one point, I put it together in my head. At that point, he was on the elder board. And I just had you know, gotten in some leadership positions here. And I wasn't the senior pastor yet. And I'm talking to him one night. And he had a room with me, all right, <laughs> which is I couldn't even imagine. And so up one night, and he said, uh, talking about his military career and campaign, just talking about some of the ways that people showed respect to him. And I said, Pete? I said, how, does it, how difficult is it for you now, ex-general, to be on the board at CBC and have this like 27-year-old tell you what to do, you know? And he gritted his little teeth and he's like, sometimes it's hard. <laughs> let me tell you what I didn't do was probably show the due respect that man deserved. <laughs> for years, that's what Jesus did. He gave up his right to be right. He gave up his freedom so that you might find, see, know the goodness of God. I, I like this stat. There's no one put on the screen. $310,000 in uh, change. I think we have a slide for it. 310605. There it is. You know what that is? Yeah. According to, according to the Brookings Institutions in 2022, it's the, uh, it's the average the U.S. family will spend to raise a kid from zero to 18. 310 grand, right? And that's just on Christmas gifts. Um, <laughs> No. I, th- I think the best way that I am understanding currently what it's like to give up what I want and what I need and what I should have for the good of others is the fact that we spend a lot of money on raising kids. And that's a good thing. But I think the beauty of that number is, is simply the idea that we give up what is rightfully ours for the good of others. It's vacation days and it's fun places and it's nicer cars and nicer homes because our kids are worth it. We gladly and gleefully give it up. And what Jesus did was he bound himself to us so that we might find and see more of him. I don't determine when I wake up anymore. I don't determine what I eat for dinner. It's whatever chicken nugget my kids drop on the floor, you know? (laughs) Maybe it's a fish stick if it's a fun Friday. I don't know, guys. Life's too enjoyable. But I think... That what we find when we talk about how we raise kids, what we find when we limit our freedom for the good of others is that's what Jesus did for you and me on ways that we can never even understand. I was talking with a friend of mine a couple of years ago. My daughter was one at this point, And I've known her and her family for a long time. And she had an 18, 17, 18-year-old daughter. And the 17, 18-year-old daughter was uh, trying hard to prove that she didn't need her parents. We'll put it kindly, Yeah. And I just had this child and I realized like all I've given up for it already. And my kid was like nine months old, all the sleepless nights and all the filth and all the everything, you know? And I was so tired. And I said, how do you do it? How do you, when your kid is 18 and they don't think they need you, how, how do you not remember all that you gave up for her and not just completely want to show her right now? She said, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. The idea that it had to be difficult for Jesus is not that he gave it up, but that we didn't appreciate it and sometimes still don't. That people didn't know what he did for you and me. 
And this is why we root this text in generosity is because it's about the simple idea that if we further understand what God gave up for us, we then become a more generous people because the response, the response to getting is giving. The response to giving on this kind of a portion is that others might know what we've been given as well. That's why the text ends like this. Verse nine, as a result of, uh, of Jesus, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Why did Jesus give all of that up? So that we might know that God is good. So that the world might know that God is worth his glory. He gave up his place in heaven and he gave us his, up his glory temporarily and he gave up his freedom so that we might see a better picture of God's goodness than we currently see. That's why. And so as followers of Jesus, when we talk about how we give this holiday season, when we talk about what to give our kids and how to give our kids and how to give nonprofits money and how to give in general, we know that it's motivated from a deep understanding of what we've been given. And my litmus for what I give this season simply is Jesus's litmus for why he gave, which is I want to give so that others might see and know and grow in the goodness and glory of God. That's it. So there's this thing going on right now that I've been reading about on parent blogs, and it's, I think if I can remember it, it's buy your kids something that is something they can wear, something they can read, something they want, and something they need. Have you seen that before? So we don't spoil our kids, just get them four things, right? And I think that's really good. It begs the question that we come back to at the beginning, so my kid doesn't have to pray to Jesus Santa Claus, why do we get kids certain things, and what is the purpose of getting kids certain things? And I think if we as a church go back to the idea that the purpose of God giving to us so that we might see, know, and grow in the goodness and glory of God, if that's our litmus for how we give to others, it opens up why we give in a beautiful way. So I, I don't forget the reason behind why we're a generous community, because God was so incredibly generous with us. And then giving becomes something that we have to do, but we get to do. It moves from duty to delight. You know? I get sometimes a little frustrated when people talk about tithing. Uh, at CBC, we're a grace-giving church. That doesn't believe we don't mean you should give. We just believe that, that giving shouldn't be rooted in a percentage that God says you have to to make him happy. That's not what we believe. We believe that you should give based on what God has given you, that you should give based on how the Holy Spirit's leading you, that you should give because you fully know and understand what God has given you, and you should give fundamentally so that people might know and grow in their understanding of God's goodness and glory. So the question we have to ask in this season is one, do you understand what Jesus gave up for you? Do you? Let me tell you something. If you don't give, you don't understand it. That's just truth. And then two, two is if you do understand it, how do we give in a way that shows people a clearer picture of God's goodness and glory? Because everything we give tells a story. It tells the story of the schools we want to support. tells the story of how we love our kids tells a story of fill in the blank, but how we give should always, always, always show the goodness and glory of God. So this holiday season, man, that might be a letter, that might be a note, that might be a baked good, that might be a Barbie caravan for your kids. My kid's gonna see the glory of God with princess dresses, everybody, all right? But the question we have to ask is not what do we give necessarily or how much should I give, but how do we give in a way that shows others the goodness and glory of God? They might know and grow in that understanding because that is why Jesus gave to us. And here's some good news. 
The good news is that the church is pretty good at this overall. We're going to land in a happy, happy place, everybody. It's Christmas. There's a, a guy that wrote a book named Robert Pundum. He wrote a book in 2000 called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of the American Community. It's really fascinating. He talks about how people used to bowl in leagues and now people bowl alone and kind of predicted the isolation of the individualism in our country that has led to now. And we can now all say, yeah, I see it. In 2010, he wrote another book. And because of that book, he became a counselor to presidents and he's kind of a big deal. He won some awards. He wrote a book in 2010 called American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us. And the purpose of this book from a non-Jesus perspective is simply, is religion good for us as a people? Does it actually make a difference? Does it make the world a better place? Does it make my community a better place? Does it make my neighborhood a better place? And he has a chapter in that book entitled Religion and Good Neighborliness. And do you know what he found? He found that religious Americans are more generous neighbors and they're more conscientious citizens. He found that in terms of volunteering, of all people who volunteer for religious groups, 91% of those that volunteer for religious groups also volunteer for secular organizations. He found that secular people with no religious affiliation, 70% of them don't volunteer at all. He found that churchgoers are two times as likely to volunteer and help the needy compared to the same demographically similar units who don't attend churches. He said the most religious gave three times the amount of money to charity as the most secular. And when measured on an uh, annual income percentage, that more, the most religious are four times as generous as the most secular. I don't use secular in a bad word. I just simply mean people that don't believe in any kind of God that gives good things. He also went on to say, and I'll quote it, virtually every part of the American philanthropic spectrum benefits disproportionately from giving by religious observant men and women. But this is especially true for organizations that serve the poor and needy. He says frequent churchgoers are more likely to give more money to charity, to do volunteer work with a charity, to give money to a homeless person, to give excess change back to a shop clerk, to donate blood, to help somebody with outside housework, to spend time with others that are down, to allow a stranger to cut in front of them, to offer a seat to a stranger, to help someone find a job, to look after a plant or pet, to give directions, to let someone borrow an item of value and to lend money to other people. He says, and I quote, any way you slice it, religious Americans are simply more generous people. I love that. My question today is simply, might we continue to be that? And do we understand that we are generous because people need to see and know the goodness and glory of God? And so when we give this holiday season, might it be around one, how we've been given, and then two, that people might see the bigger story of God unfolding all around us so they don't pray to Jesus Santa Claus like my daughter, you know? Because it's important. It's important that in a season of giving, we don't just give because we're supposed to, or we don't just give because it checks a box. We don't just give because we want our kids to be happy. Those are fine. But as followers of Jesus, what we do is rooted in a deeper truth and a deeper story and a deeper understanding of who he is and how good he is. And the world needs to see that. They need to see that God is good in a world that looks like it's not. They need to see that Jesus is worth it. They need to see that God is worth his glory and his worship. They need to see what Jesus did for them because then and only them, then will they start to begin to believe that God is good for them. And so in a season of giving, might we as a church remember why we were given and might we as a church give so that people might see and know and grow in God's goodness and God's glory. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful of all you gave up for us. My Christmas story is one we've probably heard a <laughs> hundred times. My prayer is that when we hear it, we don't forget. Just because we hear it again and again and again, might it not lose impact, might it gain power, 
it not become routine, but might it become a rhythm that informs how we live and how we give so that people can see the goodness of God. So Holy Spirit, today, show us a place that we need to give so that others might see your goodness and glory. Holy Spirit, impress upon us a person that needs to be given to so that people might see your goodness and glory. Might we be a community fueled by an understanding of what Jesus did that as we give shows people how good God is to us and the only response to that level of goodness is worship. Pray these things in the name of Jesus.